More than an athlete is a phrase that's significantly taken off over the past year. But it's not just a phrase. It's lifestyle, sentiment, and mindset. It's why I was so excited to have Josh Childress, CEO of the Landspire Group, and former NBA lottery pick on the podcast this week. Josh is the perfect embodiment of the American dream. He grew up in inner city Compton, went to Stanford, had a successful MBA career, and has transitioned to a successful real estate investor, having an impact on local communities across the country. We talked a lot about mindset and being bigger than yourself in this episode. We talked about the psychology of putting your best foot forward and honing in on a larger purpose. Josh has worked tirelessly to create opportunity for minorities in this country, and in many ways is just getting started on the impact he'll continue to have for years to come. Some of my favorite topics we discussed in the conversation were his background growing up in Compton, his experience in the NBA and playing overseas, the misconceptions of mental health for athletes, his entry into business via owning a laundromat, and why he always pushes himself to be the least smart person in the room. Josh, welcome and, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ramin. I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's uh, been a long time coming, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, Josh, me as well. You know, we met last year and and one of the things I always like to do is just observe people, uh, especially when they're successful. You know, we've had a lot of interesting folks on on the podcast here. Um, and what I always like to see is, you know, do successful folks, you know, do they pump out their chest and do they talk the most in the room, right? Did they intently listen and absorb? Um, what I loved about you and, and when we met that evening is the way you operated that night, you know, you never acted above anybody from an attitude perspective. You were definitely above everybody from a height perspective. Um, but you were deliberate, you know, genuine and down to earth. And we're, we're going to dive into a bunch of different topics today. But I want to start with that characteristic of humility, right? Where does that come from? You know, tell us a little bit more about, you know, who Josh Childress is in the early days of Josh Childress. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, very kind words. Um, you know, my humility and my approach to people um, comes from my family. Um, you know, I grew up in a household of four boys and, you know, life for us um, in Compton, California, uh, you know, uh, I would say lends itself to humility, right? I mean, we, <laughs> we, I didn't come from, you know, a wealthy family by any means and, and you know, uh, treating people right and having respect for individuals uh, was also um, something that my, my, my family really instilled in me at an early age. And, um, you know, I've carried that with me. I think that, you know, when I'm in rooms uh, like that, and I am obviously the, the tallest guy in the room, uh, I also understand that, you know, there are some very brilliant individuals, very wealthy individuals, uh, and um, very, you know, just good people that are in those rooms um, that aren't putting themselves above or below uh, me either. So this is just a genuine connection, uh, you know, in trying to get to know people and, and understand, you know, what they're about and where they are on their journey. You alluded to it, you know, growing up in Compton, um, you know, you previously talked in, in other interviews and conversations about how you know, rough of an environment that was. Talk a little bit more, you know, just about the adversity of growing up in Compton. Yeah, I would say, you know, I was very fortunate that I lived, you know, in an area of Compton that was, you know, fairly quiet. Um, you know, I, I often, uh, let's say, say that there was a park that was the the barrier for me between, you know, one side of what you probably see on TV, you know, that side of Compton and where I lived. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful for that, that park, because that was also where I was able to hone my skills as a basketball player. But, um, you know, the area at large, um, you know, there's a fair amount of violence, there's a fair amount of, uh, you know, economic, uh, you know, poverty and, and, I think that the biggest issue is, is there's just a, a, an overall lack of upper mobility um, and a lack of, of exposure to opportunities for a lot of the, the community members at large. And it was a, a, a great group of people, hardworking individuals, um, you know, who just may not have been exposed to and or had the opportunity to, um, you know, to take a look at things that I'm looking at now, right? Living in Orange County and, and having just a different uh, network of people, um, you know, that I'm around. So. Um, you know, that's part of my goal and my journey with my company um, is to change that. But, um, you know, the community uh, always embraced me and uh, I embrace the community back and I've, I've tried to do that um, since I've been a professional athlete and beyond. And so talk a little bit more, Josh, about, you know, where the motivation to pursue success comes from, right? So you were just alluding to it, which is, 
um, in growing up in the type of environment you grew up in, um, you know, great people, hardworking people, but I'm a firm believer in you're the average of the five people that you spend the most amount of time with. I'm, I'm also a firm believer that strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same coin, right? And so I think one of one of the downfalls or the downsides is, you know, being around folks that might not necessarily have that exposure, right? Not by any fault or any lack of desire on themselves, but just lack of exposure. Where, you know, talk a little bit more about where that intrinsic motivation to pursue success, et cetera, comes from, you know, when you're growing up um, in, in the type of environment you grew up in. Yeah, so, you know, we, we emulate what we see on TV, at least back then, you know, that's what it was. Now, you know, it's with the cell phone, you know, you, you're bombarded with a, a massive amount of information. But, um, you know, that sort of motivation for me and that exposure came when I went to Stanford. Um, you know, which it was a blessing in itself, you know, having the opportunity to go there and, and, you know, spend three years there. Um, but that's where I got exposed to a different world, um, you know, in terms of, of opportunities and uh, interests and, and things of that sort. Uh, in addition to that, though, um, I'd say the basketball world at large uh, allowed a kid like myself to, um, you know, be exposed to different, different people, right? So that's the beauty of youth athletics is you have, you know, seven or eight kids that are, you know, come from inner cities, you know, kind of coming together with kids that live, you know, out here in Orange County in the suburbs, you know, and we'd have team parties, team events, things of that sort. But we got a chance to, to see homes that didn't necessarily look like ours, right? And with that, you, you, you got a, an early exposure to, you know, what these parents did for a living. Um, and whether I understood it or not at the time, I was still exposed to it. A seed was planted. Um, and that gave me a vision of, what are of something that I could pursue uh, and aspire to, to be like, um, you know, when I become, uh, when I became an adult. So, um, you know, the power of sports not only gave me that, um, that exposure, but also, you know, allowed me to go to Stanford, which then put me in a different, um, different environment altogether. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Stanford and kind of that decision. Um, was basketball always the goal? Like, did you, did you always want to be a pro athlete or talk a little bit more you know, about that story or mentality? Yeah, uh, I didn't. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think you have those kids that you see at an early age are just really talented, head and shoulders above the rest of the competition. And that wasn't me. Um, you know, I, I kind of hit my growth spurt around, um, you know, my sophomore year of, of high school, where I then started to transition into, you know, a, a more elite um, level of player. But, um, you know, growing up, I, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And um, that was uh, birthed through me having to do a book report on uh, Dr. Ben Carson. And, um, you know, he had uh, separated uh, Siamese twins that were uh, connected, uh, you know, via their, their skulls. And um, I was just fascinated at, you know, his impact uh, and seeing and truly seeing an individual that looked like me that, you know, that did this. Right. And so. Um, you know, that was inspirational and um, that's what I wanted to be as, as a kid. I, I like, there's a couple of nuggets from there that I want to untether, which is one is I think it's, it's so important to have representation and see someone that looks like yourself succeed, right? And I think, you know, speaking both as minorities, I think there's, there's that element certainly um, that matters so much. And it's a subconscious thing that unless you're seated in that position, right, you can't really appreciate or it's tough to understand um, I think there's another piece also, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hearing as a thread in this conversation, which is a, a consistency of mentality. So neurosurgery might've been the mechanism at that time, but it sounds like the underlying goal was you were going to succeed at whatever you're doing, right. At the individual, as an individual at the highest level. Right. Um, and, and so you're six, six, you've got a shot to play major college basketball. Um, you have offers from all the top programs. Talk to me a little bit more about you know, why Stanford and, and we'll dig into, I'm really curious, actually, I'm a huge basketball nerd, you know that I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious to dig into kind of the recruiting process, like how it was back then, et cetera. But let's talk about, you know, just Stanford um, in general and, and that choice point. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, now I'm, I'm six, 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 seven, um, you know, I've been recruited by, you know, all the top programs in the country. And, um, you know, at that point for me, it was more about, where I fit in the best, where I thought that I could step into, grow as a player, grow as a person, 
but also thrive, you know, and, and develop. And, um, you know, I'd say my final kind of five choices, um, you know, were Carolina, uh, UCLA, Arizona, Kansas, and Stanford, right? So when you as think a, about as it. As a Duke guy, that hurts me, Josh. <laughs> <that> Carolina was <laughs> there. <laughs> um, but you can't go wrong with any of those, really. You know? And, um, you know, so then it came down to, you know, recruiting classes. It came down to, you know, my, my relationship with the coach. Uh, you know, and when it was all said and done, for me, it came down to Stanford and Kansas. Um, those were, I mean, I, I went to UCLA, you know, on unofficial recruiting visits, but those are my two official visits. And, um, you know, the power in Roy Williams and his ability to, um, you know, make you feel good about yourself, right? And he, you know, he, he was, um, you know, and still is, obviously a Hall of Fame coach, but he's also just a great person. And, um, you know, I really, uh, enjoyed and appreciated that process with him. And I mean, he had my mom and my family sold. Like I got, I, I haven't shared this many times, but you know, there was a fair amount of disappointment that I chose Stanford, you know, for my family, right? Which is interesting to say, That's you know, <laughs> but that was just how much they loved Roy Williams, you know, and, and his impact. You would, think it, you would think it would be the inverse actually, right? Where you've heard, you, you actually see with a lot of high profile athletes. And I think this is actually where like the guidance of parents is so critical is folks saying that, you know, look, if you blow out your knee, Josh, you're gonna have a Stanford degree, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of times the athlete, right? Being so in the moment and kind of, you know, having trained for, you know, seeing kind of the seduction of the NBA, is kind of focused not on the right thing. So that that's interesting in a sense also to hear that that inverse reaction. Yeah. And and you know, for my mother, this was, you know, she was giving her baby to someone yep. to help mold and groom him into becoming a man, right? So um, you know, she thought Roy was the best person to do that. Uh and um I just had a different thought. And uh, you know, in going on my recruiting visits, I felt like the environment at Stanford was uh, much more suited to me as a person. Um, you know, I got along well with my, my teammates at that time, future teammates, um, and just had a blast. And so, um, you know, that put me at ease uh, in making that decision uh, because I knew that this was this was the place for me. And, um, you know, I mean, it's obviously uh, proven proven to be the case. Um, and, you know, when you think about the relationships you, you form, you know, through college, I mean, my the guy that took me on my recruiting visit at Stanford is now my business partner, right? And so, you know, 20 years have gone by and we're still as close as ever, um, you know, and that's just, you know, obviously gives me um, supreme um, satisfaction in knowing that, you know, I made made the right decision. How is the recruiting process? Talk a little bit more about that in 03, you know, when you were coming out versus now, I mean, the onslaught of just I think social media, right? Like every athlete making like a montage and a video of announcing their selection, right? It's a totally different world, right? <laughs> um, so talk a little bit more about kind of the recruiting process for a highly sought after player like yourself, you know, 17 years ago, and just, you know, give some perspective also on how that landscape has, has changed for better or for worse. Yeah. So, uh, you know, back then it, it was, you know, everything was done really through a couple recruiting hubs, right? I, and I, I don't remember all of them, but I remember there were a couple guys that, you know, developed ranking systems. And so, you know, they kind of made, or there was make or break through them on, you know, who was getting seen and who wasn't, you know, Nike All-American camp, ABCD camp, those were, you know, the go-to places for talent to be seen. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it was done through your AAU team, right? And so uh, now I think, um, you know, coaches having direct access to players in a way that, you know, wasn't, wasn't there before. I, I can actually take me to a different, different place, but I remember the first day where we could receive calls from college coaches, um, you know, my home phone was blowing up. Right. So you think about it, like, you know, that was their only point of contact with me was, <laughs> you know, calling me on the home phone, um, you know, whereas now kids can get texts and, you know, all that other stuff. And so, just the difficulty in not having a direct path to a kid, um, you know, made the recruiting process, I think, um, you know, more pure in a sense. Um, yeah. You know, you really had to work, you know, to get to kids and, um, you know, and get deals done. So, um, you know, that as opposed to now and, 
you know, everybody's announcing via montages and, you know, every kid has 50 million schools that they've all, they've been offered for on their, on their, uh, their IG and it's just a different world. But, um, you know, I, I still remember those days fondly and understanding that like, this is a blessing that I have, you know, this amount of, of uh, uh, co- these amount of colleges approaching me and wanting to pay for my education and give me a chance to show my skills. So let's, let's talk MBA. Um, I grew up in Atlanta. I'm based here. You know that I was, I was actually a big fan when you came to the Hawks as the, the sixth pick. That was a squad. I mean, it was a young squad, but it was a squad. Uh, you know, talk about your journey in Atlanta. And that was a team that, that really was, I think, when you look at kind of, if you're really an NBA aficionado and, and you're looking back at kind of teams, that was a team that improved every single season, right? So talk yeah. a little bit more about just getting to the league, you know, your, your journey in Atlanta to kick it off. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a squad. And I think, you know, Billy Knight and Chris Grant were a little bit ahead of their time in, you know, the way they crafted that team. Um, I mean, it's pretty normal now, right? When you look at how teams are composed. Uh, but that was that was the six six to six nine small ball squad, right? When you think about it, I mean, my fourth year, you know, uh, Mike Bibby came in and, and was the, the PG. All those other years, we had you know smaller guards like Teron Lou and you know a couple other guys. But by and large, you know, Billy's uh, strategy was I want all guys that are long, athletic six, you know, six, five to six, nine, switch everything, you know, and wreak havoc on, on, on defenses. And, um, we did that. We were fun to watch. I felt like, um, you know, I remember we, we won like 13 games by rookie year and we just improved, <laughs> improved on that, made the playoffs that fourth year. Um, you know, and I, I really wish that, uh, that team could have stayed together, uh, for longer. Um, you know, I was a part of, of, you know, that not happening, but, uh, you know, it was, those are fun times. And, uh, still keep in touch with those guys, um, Josh and Marvin and Joe and Zaza and, um, and Bibby and some of those other guys. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember those days finally, man, it was a good time to be in the league. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Atlanta fans were always pretty good. It was interesting too, because, you know, you alluded to it that you were a part of, of that team not staying together, but, I think that's a uh, that's a bit hard on yourself. I think there's an, there's another side of that story too, right? Which is when contract negotiation time came around, the front office kind of slow played you. Um, I I actually think when you look at again kind of the landscape of basketball, um, what that resulted in was actually something really interesting, right? And it was something that sent you know shockwaves throughout the league at that time, which was you turned down a five year, thirty three million dollar contract with the Hawks and you went overseas to Greece. Right. So walk me through, you know, walk me through that decision and the thought process as you made that decision. Part of it, you know, as, as I think any high profile decision, whether in business, sports, whatever it is, sometimes there is an element that's not in your control, but there's an element that's in your control, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about that decision and, um, and you know, we'll, we'll dive in a bit deeper, but let's start with the decision and the thought process behind it. Yeah. So one small detail in that is that I was never presented a contract. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, um, you know, they ended up uh, terminating Billy, brought in Rick Sund, and Rick and I didn't have a relationship, um, you know, and I think he was brought in to kind of be, you know, a hard line negotiator for contracts. You know, this was a time where, you know, the club was going to have to start negotiating a bunch of these with myself and Marvin and Josh, and, you know, this was about to happen. Um, and, and so, you know, free agency hits, I'd had this conversation with Billy the summer before and said, Hey, we're not there yet on extensions. You know, you guys stay, you stay healthy. You know, you guys continue to progress. You know, we'll, we'll take care. We'll get this taken care of. Uh, you know, and so that was my mentality going into the season, stay healthy, you know, make sure that I'm, you know, on top of my game and, you know, we get this handled. And so when he was then, you know, removed, it, it, it disrupted that process uh, because Rick had no pre-existing relationship and really, um, you know, came at it from, you know, from his point of view and saying, Hey, I have a job to do. I need to make sure that I'm setting this team up for long-term success. Um, Josh, we appreciate what you've done, but 
go to the market and see what, you know, see what comes, comes of it. Uh, and so I did that. And there was a couple of sign and trade deals that, that came up one um, from the team that I ended up signing on, signing up for or signing with a couple of years later, the Phoenix Suns, and the other with the San Antonio Spurs. And so here I am, you know, my fourth year, at finishing my fourth year in the league, San Antonio at this time was, you know, the premier team in the league. Um, and I met with, with Coach Popovich uh, in Vegas. And he said, hey, this is what we want. This is what we think that you, you, you know, fit in with our team. Uh, you know, Bruce Bowen is on his way out. We want you to kind of come in and, and be that, you know, kind of defensive-minded uh, uh, 3 and D guy before the term was coined. You know, we're, we have a great shooting coach here in Chip England that's going to work with you. And, you know, we want to kind of create that, um, you know, for you and for our club moving forward. Um, you know, and coming from a system at Stanford to then, um, you know, uh, now a system where I could have, you know, probably fit in pretty well in, in San Antonio, it was like music to my ears. Not that I didn't appreciate my time in Atlanta, but, you know, the Spurs were championship contender and, you know, you get it. I get it. I totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to be and to that same point, you know, Phoenix was, you know, a perennial playoff team and, you know, was, was, you know, another kind of small ball, you know, run and gun, you know, that like was Steve Nash and Murray, uh, like it was a, yeah, totally. Yep. And, um, and so I have two teams that are quite successful in the league, um, you know, trying to make a play on me and Sun shut both of those down. So I don't know what else to do. You know, he goes, says, go down and find, go out and find an offer. I just so happened to find an offer in Greece. Uh, you know, and, and uh, met with the Olympiacos uh, uh, ownership group in Vegas around the same time I met with Popovich during summer league, had that conversation uh, and, you know, had some legs. So a couple of weeks later, I hopped on a plane over to, to, to Athens to check it out, um, liked what I saw. I mean, they sold, you know, Athens in the summer is hard to beat, you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I found that, you know, it's somewhere I could, I could live and, and and you know thrive and and um you know i presented that to to uh the hawks i don't think that they thought i would do it and i did it so that was that what was i want you to talk a little bit about what going to greece was like and i and i think there's a couple of threads with that question so one you know you've been living an nba lifestyle so i think there's there's an element of you know not not the money and that element i mean more about when you're at the top of whatever you're doing, whether it's business, whether it's sport, et cetera, the, you know, the NBA is the best league in the world, right? You're like, you're in the big leagues, literally, right? So there's, there's a part of, there's a transition there. There's another element, which is obviously it's a different country, different language, different food, you know, all of that. So the huge culture shock. Um, but then there's a third element that's kind of coming into my mind as we're speaking, which is a theme of the conversation we've been having, which is exposure, right? So after the fact, right, and it might not be, a, it might not have been something that uh, you appreciated at that time specifically. It's always hard when you're in an experience to appreciate it for what it is. But kind of the after the fact exposure, especially you know now as a successful businessman, so on and so forth. So talk a little bit more, just you know about what what was Greece, um, what was Greece like, and at that stage in your career. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you know the NBA is the pinnacle of of basketball, professional basketball. And, you know, leaving that was not easy. Uh, but I also uh, am very much aware of the business and understanding that, you know, as an athlete, you have, you know, an expiration date of sorts, you know, on your career. And so um, as the Hawks were doing what they felt was best for them as, a, as an organization, I had to do what was best for me as a player. Um, and so, you know, moving to Greece, um, you know, there were some immediate changes that you see, right? I mean, the travel is different. The lodging is different. You know, our, our first few trips, I was like, why do I have a roommate? You know, like that, you know, just like that's a small one. But, um, uh, you know, it was just a, a different thing than what I was used to for the last four years. Um, but, you know, going back to where I grew up, this was still – pretty awesome, you know, and, and get a chance to travel around Europe and, and play in countries that I'd only seen on a map. So, um, you know, that side of it uh, for me was was pretty cool. Um, you know, I got to, I got exposed to different culture, different groups of people, 
you know, I had teammates from, you know, a wide range of different countries and had different perspectives. Um, so, you know, the, the Stanford guy in me appreciated that and being able to, to connect with guys that I would have never connected with, you know, before. Um, you know, one of my good friends on the Atlanta team was Zaza Pachulia. And so that was kind of my exposure to, you know, European, uh, you know, European basketball players. And that was a great experience in itself. We're still good friends. And so, um, you know, that then gave me, a, I think, a, um, an experience that I could apply, you know, living, living over in Europe. So by and large, man, it was, um, and it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot. I was exposed to a lot of different people. Um, I saw a lot of crazy things, you know, playing in EuroLeague basketball, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it. So you come back to the NBA um, and then you bounce around teams for a few years, right? I think it was four teams in four years. Uh, people don't talk about, and, and I think from the outside in, it's really, you know, there's 420 guys in the NBA, right? So whether, yeah. you know, whether you're on TV and you're saying that guy sucks or that guy's not good, they're one of the best 420 players in the world, right? And I think people often don't talk about the mental health and the challenge, you know, Kevin Love's come out with some great stuff now and I, and I think, um, you know, Dak came out for, in the NFL um, and that's fantastic because it adds more, you know, context also to the conversation when you see big star athletes like that, you know, saying, um, saying things or talking openly, uh, but people don't talk about the mental health and the challenge of four teams in four years. And I, I think the closest that, you know, folks can resonate with it on the outside is what would it be like to pick up your family and go to four, four different cities in four different years, right? Yeah. Um, how was that experience for you, right? Talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and just to, to preface that, I think people don't fully understand it because all they see is the paycheck, right? Yeah. So they don't understand, you know, that money can't buy happiness. And, yeah. and um, you know, that's a big, I think a big miss for a lot of people. They just don't understand that there is more to life than, than money and, and money doesn't fix, you know, fix issues. As it relates to, you know, that four teams in four years, um, you know, signing with Phoenix for, uh, you know, after two years in Greece for a five-year contract. Um, and then, you know, it really being the first, I guess, place that I didn't fit in and or play was really challenging. Um, you know, I, I came in with high expectations. I know they did too. Uh, and, you know, there just wasn't a fit there. And so um, while, I think it would have it would have been amazing to you know in that first year or second you know early in that second year you know to try and get something done where you know either a trade or they can move me somewhere else um, you know and get the value that they would have hoped I got gotten out of that contract um, you know would have been probably ideal for both sides um, you know after that second year um, you know it, it was really difficult for me from a, a mental perspective and confidence perspective as you know i'd never experienced this before um you know i had dealt with um the passing of my father uh, in a not so great way and i was just it was just tough to kind of climb out of this hole you know and my you know obviously my 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 basketball game suffered you know tremendously through that and um you know and so then i i was kind of scrambling to to try and figure it out got got on with um you know with brooklyn that lasted half a season um, and then got on with the, the, the Pelicans. Um, and that was a, a, you know, a half a season or, you know, a couple months or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, you go from the pinnacles, right. And, you know, you, you come in six pick, you're, you know, you, you go and sign the largest contract in European basketball history. You come back home, super excited about, you know, going to, you know, a great organization. Um, and, you know, then you spend the next four years just kind of trying to figure things out and, and, you know, put pieces together and, you know, just trying to understand what this is and why can't I get out of this rut. Um, and I, I never was a, a firm believer in like medicating, um, you know, at level. Uh, and so I just tried to, you know, just find a way to, to kind of get out of it. And eventually um, I didn't, right? And so I got released from, from New Orleans uh, and, um, you know, was at this kind of crossroads in my life and I, I said, well, it's time to go back to school, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I finished three years at Stanford. And so 
I, I gathered all my paperwork, got things done, and, and went back on campus for spring quarter, <laughs> which was kind of crazy, you know, when I think, think back on it. Um, but, uh, you know, basketball mentally for me was in the rear view, um, you know, as, you know, just the, the inability to, to kind of get back to where I felt like I could be, um, you know, from a mental perspective, uh, you know, just wasn't happening. And so went back to school, um, spent the first couple of weeks just kind of getting acclimated and then started playing with the team. You know, started started getting in open runs and just getting getting out there and running around and you know trying to stay in shape, um, and that's where I really redeveloped my love for the game again. Um, you know, and and understood that I still had some some mileage left on on and you know on these legs and could still play and play at a high level. So um, so yeah, I mean that's what happened and that's what then prompted you know the next shoot five years. Uh, of basketball really was me getting back to Stanford. It's, and I, I think it's two, two things that are, that really resonate with what you said, Josh, one is kind of the, the self-awareness, right? Because I think, you know, again, outside in, you know, as a top athlete, someone who has a mentality of, you know, making it no matter what, um, I'm always curious as to how athletes know, you know, when the time is up and when to move on. Look, I mean, if you tear your ACL and you're 38, it's probably over, right? I mean, but at the same time, right, especially for folks that are kind of still in their prime or even at a, at an end of, at a, in a transition phase of their career where they can still be highly productive. Um, I think there's an element there. There's another element too, which is, you know, just the thought of, you know, at what point in time do you start thinking about a post-basketball career, right? And kind of putting that foundation in. I, um, I found out something really interesting for you and interesting about you in preparing for this conversation, which was, you owned a laundromat when you were still active as a player. I think it was between the NBA and going to Sydney. Uh, mm-hmm. And I want you to talk about that because, you know, I, I saw the interview, I saw some of the things that you said, and I think it was super thoughtful, right? Especially in terms of kind of what you were doing on building some foundational skills. But but talk a little bit more, you know, I want to give you the floor to talk a little bit more about that experience. And, yeah. and why, look, a laundromat's not a sexy business at all, right? It's a lot of hard work. So, um, <laughs> and not a lot of upside in one individual unit, right? Like if you scale, what, that's a different story. But um, so talk, talk a little bit more, you know, about that decision and that experience. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I love that you brought that up because it's, uh, I, I think about that laundromat, um, it actually turned out to be fairly successful for me. <laughs> but anyway, so, <laughs> Um, you know, you can only read so much, so many books, you can only watch so many YouTube videos. You, you, you have to eventually immerse yourself in an opportunity and just do it, you know, and you're going to fail and you're going to um, learn a lot along the way. But, you know, if you don't actually get your hands dirty, uh, and do something, you'll never really learn it. Right. And so that was my approach, you know, in business and, you know, I'm still learning obviously, but. Um, you know, I, I just thought, what was a, a low cost um, and relatively low risk way for me to get into um, business and understand the inner workings of kind of how to manage a business, manage people, um, you know, build something. And that was it. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd remember and this was my, my aunt was um, in the dry cleaning business, but, you know, she put you know, two kids through college, a grandson through college, um, you know, owning a, a, a dry cleaning business, right? And so these are very viable businesses and, you know, you can make a living off of them. Um, you know, so from that perspective, you know, I felt like it was something I could replicate. But um, yeah, I went and bought a laundromat, you know, not too far from where I lived. Um, ended up owning that laundromat for uh, about five years, four or five years. Um, uh did quite well on the laundromat um and transitioned that investment into uh into a some real estate and some other things but um you know building a foundation uh and building it actively is something that i think is super important um and um that was really the reason why i did it i wanted to learn and learn hands-on and learn in a way that you know still provided you know some monthly cash flow but also um, you know, gave me opportunity to, to, to kind of be boots on the ground and, and, um, you know, not have a a massive amount of overhead and employees and things that, you know, larger businesses have to worry about. 
I think a lot of those, and we're going to talk about what you're doing at Landspire a ton, but I think some of the characteristics you're pointing out of, you know, low maintenance, nice recurring cash flow is probably why you got on the real estate side as well, right? A lot of the same characteristics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'm, yeah. curious, I'm curious if you, you know, it's interesting. So you said you you mentioned that, you know, your aunt had a, had a, um, a laundromat or dry cleaning business. And so you obviously got exposure to that specific business, right? You know, from family, et cetera. Uh, there's a different scale of business, right? Obviously, once you're at Stanford, once you've been in the league, et cetera, that you get exposed to. Mm -hmm. You've talked previously of, you know, about how one of the most transformative experiences for you in terms of really understanding business, I think was sitting down with one of the owners of the Hawks relatively early in your career, right? Developing that relationship, getting a walk through the business of the NBA, right? Versus just the basketball side. Um, I want you to tell us or talk a little bit more around you know, there was that experience with, you know, one of the owners of the team, you know, were there other players that you looked up to or kind of talked to you about, Hey, Josh, you know, when you're, when you are on your way out or, you know, start putting a foundation and start thinking about business opportunities, et cetera. Talk a little bit more about some of those relationships developed in the league or, and, and distill down kind of what were, mo what were those most transformative experiences that really got you and your mind thinking in that way? Cause I think that's the biggest piece, right? The biggest piece is actually shifting your mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways when you're kind of entering in on the business side. Yeah. So I did have a, a pretty solid relationship with uh, Michael Guerin, who was one of the owners of the team. And we actually didn't talk a ton about um, the NBA. We talked about his business and um, the things that he was working on, um, you know, with, with the family business and with his business individually. Uh, and, you know, while I didn't understand a lot of the things that, you know, he was talking about and, I tried to just, you know, sit there and learn and absorb and um, ask questions and probably a ton of silly questions, but, you know, really just align myself with other individuals and other individuals that were successful. Um, you know, part of, um, you know, the growth process is like, you know, how can I be the, the least smart guy in the room, you know, and start to learn from the other guys around me. And that was one of those moments, you know, he was, uh, he's an intelligent guy, he's, he's super successful. And so, um, you know, that mentality also kind of came from Stanford as well. You know, I, I was exposed to a, a wide range of, of professionals in the business space that were wildly successful. Um, and, you know, having dinner, being able to sit down and have a conversation, have them understand where I am as a person, where I want to be, um, you know, was important to me and is important to my growth process. Um, you know, the NBA business at large is, is uh, made up of, you know, I don't know how many owners there are total, but a lot of successful individuals, right? And so how can you leverage the fact that they already enjoy and love sports, you know, and love, you know, you as a, as a player, um, you know, to, to further yourself as a person. And, you know, that's, that was my mentality. Um, you know, and while I didn't understand it all, I knew that, um, you know, that's what I wanted to do and how I wanted to learn from other successful people. So um, very thankful for that, I, that, that relationship, I actually need to reach out to him um, now that you remind me, because I just need to check in and see how, how Michael is doing. But, um, you know, that was a, a great chance for me to learn and grow, um, you know, well before my mind was even thinking about post-career post um, aspirations. Um, you know, a lot of the, the individuals that I had spoken to at that time were envisioning me kind of being a, an MBA executive and that was the path that people kept, you know, mentioning for me was, you know, uh, you, have you thought, have you looked into the GM program? Have you looked into, you know, the, the executive program, what all that looks like? Um, so I think people saw that in me in, at an early age um, and, you know, conversations were centered around that and kind of helping, you know, nudge me towards that direction. Uh, but by and large, um, you know, exposure, relationships and um you know kind of having a growth mentality of things that i've you know i've had you know for a long time and and that um relationship with michael was part of that i i like the way you framed it exposure relationships and mentality um because i think going from the mentality of a top pro athlete to really starting at the bottom of the totem pole in a sense in business right and, and starting something from scratch um is hard, right? Like obviously you had a platform, right? A platform doesn't guarantee success in business. 
right? You know that running a company now. And, and I think a lot of athletes, unfortunately, find that out like the tough way. Um, mm-hmm. I recently had Cap Cole on the podcast. She runs Focus Brands, which is a $5 billion holding company, right? It owns Cinnabon, Moe's, Jamba Juice, kind of all your like namesake brands. Mm-hmm. She has this entrepreneurial motto I love, which is, you know, don't you ever forget where you came from, but don't you dare let it define you, right? And she similarly came up, you know, she had a, um, she had a childhood filled with a lot of adversity and it was really interesting hearing the motto kind of articulated like that. Um, because what it really did was it, it gave a sense also of why even someone that could be so successful was so comfortable with starting over the way she described it was, you know, I had happiness and found happiness when I had nothing. Right. And so the ability or the fear of, Hey, let me start over. So just never really kind of resonated. And that allowed me to take every next big jump and every big career opportunity. Um, I want you to talk about, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of where that pragmatism and humility comes from, you know, in you, I want to transition and talk a little bit more about what you're doing at Landspire Group now. Right. And I want to talk about it in this kind of frame of it's an idiom that's become popular now. And, and I'm so glad for it, which is this concept of more than an athlete. Mm-hmm. Right? And so talk a little bit more about Landspire Group, you know, what, why you founded the business uh, and what you and your team are up to. Yeah. Uh, I think I was on that, uh, that, uh, clubhouse call. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, Kat, that was my first interaction with her. Um, and we, we connected on, on Twitter after that. Um, but, uh, I love that, that she, um, she spoke those words and I, I wrote those down and, um, have since started to kind of implement them into, you know, my, uh, my mission and, and, you know, how I present to other athletes and, and, and people. Um, so really cool. Anyway, so um, I started Landspire Group with my former college teammate and roommate, Justin Davis, um, really on the backs of the Opportunity Zone legislation. And we saw this legislation was, was and is um, designed um, to allow the wealthy individuals in this country um, to, uh, get even wealthier. Right. Uh, and with that, they are going into communities that really need redevelopment. Um, but they have no ties to these communities whatsoever. And so without a a common connection and or tie to these areas, um, you know, it's very easy to look at it as just an investment, um, and have no feelings towards displacement. And, you know, that didn't sit well with us. Um, you know, part of growing up in Compton, part of my, my partner, Justin, growing up in Oakland, um, you know, in Oakland seen it in a different manner than Compton has is, you know, there's a fair amount of development that comes in and just wipes out the local community stakeholders at large, um, you know, and they have nothing to show for it. And, you know, where, where do they go? And so uh, real estate is a really powerful tool, um, as you know, and as uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, and how could we utilize that tool to impact change through real estate development uh, and investment uh, that actually benefits the community? So that's our focus. Um, you know, we are trying to provide capital to under-resourced communities, um, trying to, to spur economic growth um, by creating um, housing opportunities, uh, you know, potential commercial space, and really just allowing the community at large to benefit from what we're trying to build um, versus just uh, extract from. So um, that's where we are. And, and we've, um, you know, we've have a couple of projects in the pipeline now that we're really excited about. Um, one of them in Compton, we, we, we signed a, um, an agreement with the city to build uh, roughly 70 to 80 housing units um, there. And so we're working through that process now um, and have a couple other projects um, one in Las Vegas and another here, uh, here locally. So it's been a, a heck of a two years in building this thing, you know, and, and um, I'm learning a lot. I'm actually in the master's program at Georgetown trying to further solidify, um, you know, my, my uh, knowledge base in real estate and, and uh, you know, know what the heck I'm talking about when I'm talking to investors. But uh, um, it's been a, it's been an amazing journey the last couple of years. And uh, Justin has been a great partner and, yeah, we're trying to build something, you know, that's, that's impactful and that 
changes the landscape of what real estate investors look like. You know, I walk into a room, walk into a conference, you know, there is a, a pretty, pretty noticeable lack of representation, um, you know, in those rooms uh, that, that look like me. And so, you know, it's about how, how can I build something and then, you know, bring the next generation of, of you know, kids that look like me and professionals that, um, you know, or minorities in general, you know, to this space. So we talk a lot about that in tech in terms of representation in real estate. It's even more so skewed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, that's really powerful to me when I hear that story is bringing, you know, not just kind of the cold heart investor hat, which is, you know, you need to have, especially when you're, you know, raising funds and you have LPs and it's a business deal. Right. Uh, but having that sense of really feeling and attachment. And I think one of the things you've talked about previously that's that's been really powerful is this experience of, you know, when you go back into inner cities and you ask kids, you know, what they want to be when they grow up, you know, it's typically rappers or athletes or so. And it's, a lot of that is because of what you were talking about earlier in the conversation, exposure on TV, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. How much does it mean to you, you know, to create an example for kids and inner city families on, you know, additional possibilities to make that impact and create impact in the world for themselves. Yeah, it means the world to me. And that's, that's what drives me. Um, not only, you know, for kids uh, from inner cities, but also for other athletes. You know, I think that, you know, in this process, I've now, you know, created a, a you know, a, an open line of communication with other athletes um, who are in, either interested in real estate or, um, you know, have done a couple deals, but, you know, are still trying to figure things out. Uh, and so it just it, it opens a line of communication and helping us understand the power of the industry at large, um, but also, you know, what a, ne- a network can look like, right? And bringing people together and working together towards, you know, a common goal. So, um, you know, me being able to be the conduit for, you know, kids from inner cities, you know, like the ones I grew up in, um, to uh, to a space that, uh, you know doesn't have uh, a, a fair amount of representation in it in addition to other athletes who you know have cash you know have had some you know not so great experiences in the space and helping them learn um is you know what i'm about man it's, it's about impact it's about you know um you know kind of i guess um word am i looking for i say paying it forward but um, you know, just creating that impact and, and, and allowing guys and, and individuals at large to just become a part of a, a larger community that, um, you know, helps move things forward. I think it's creating a peer group, right? It's creating a support system, yeah. ecosystem, you know, real estate and investing. They're dog eat dog businesses. I mean, investing in general. Right? Um, and I think the biggest challenge and the biggest mistake oftentimes a lot of athletes make um, and you know, I, I think this is probably a whole separate conversation, but especially in VC as of late is, it's just, you know, it's so easy to get seduced by that, like new sexy hardware company, right? And you don't understand the underlying unit economics or there's some broker out there that's trying to make like a cheap buck on an athlete that has a bunch of money, right? It's in many senses, it's a predatory environment, right? And it can be. Um, and so I think I think that that kind of concept of peer group and ecosystem and such is so important because um, it's easy to deploy capital. It's not easy to return capital, right? Um, and I'm, you know, you you guys have really, and and credit to yourself, Josh, you really have been thoughtful and intentional, I think, in, in the way you built Landspire. So I want you to talk a little bit more about how you have gotten up to six, how, how you've gotten up to speed. That's one piece, right, in real estate. Um, and then the other is how you put yourself in a position to succeed, right? Really build a company that's not you know, a one-time fund or it's, you know, uh, a tour of duty, you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of the, a project you're doing now and then you'll, you know, do something else, right, with your platform, et cetera, but really building a sustainable firm, right, that generates impact in the communities you're working with, with the stakeholders you're working with, return to the investors, you know, and I, I think quite candidly is a, is a golden opportunity to serve as a model for other athletes also on what's possible, right, what's possible with that Venn diagram intersection of platform capital and smarts, right? Smarts on an actual, on the underlying business and opportunity that you're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think a lot of that boils down to self-awareness, understanding that I don't know it all. Um, and there's a lot that I need to learn in this space. Uh, and, um, you know, 
seeking out help, seeking out information, uh, but also partnering with groups that, you know, have been in the game for, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years that have, you know, a couple billion in assets under management that, um, you know, will help us grow uh, at, in a way that uh, is sustainable. And so for me uh, and my company, that's what we've been all about, you know, so far. So in our two years of existence, um, you know, we've partnered now on three opportunities with three kind of institutional level investors. Uh, and, you know, through that process, we're learning alongside them. We're learning how they, how they underwrite a deal. We're, you know, learning through the legal processes and, and, um, you know, we have no issue giving up economics early on for the learning experience and for, um, you know, the, the opportunity to, to kind of build our platform and our foundation of experience, you know, for the long haul. So um, there's a level of self-awareness and humility in that. Um, I think secondly, um, you know, just leveraging relationships. You know, we, we talk about, um, you know, our, our platform as athletes a lot, um, but how many of us are actually utilizing those to go out and, you know, be the, the least smart guy in the room, right? And like, you know, be humble, sit down with somebody, say, man, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, what do you think of this? You know, how can I fine tune this? How would you, you know, approach this if you were me? Um, and you'd be surprised at, you know, the, the level of, of communication you get back from people. Um, you know, finding quality mentors is crucial to I think any, uh, you know, business, uh, business person, whether that be VC tech, real estate, what have you. And so I've been very deliberate in that, that regard, um, you know, in, in, in my growth as a, a business owner. So um, I think those things kind of combined with, you know, trying to find good deals, uh, you know, are, are important to the success of, of me, my company, and, uh, you know, moving forward, we'll look to continue to build on, on those and, and um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, be a model uh, that, that guys can try to replicate and or come learn from, um, you know, for the future. When, when I invest in companies, Josh, one of the principal things I look for is how well do the founders know each other, right? And how well do they work together? I have a framework, which is, you know, I first ask, you know, does this problem even make sense? Is this a real problem, right? The second piece is, you know, is the product, is the solution, does that actually address, you know, the problem itself? Mm -hmm. The third piece is might be an awesome solution and a real problem, but is there a business here, right? Is this an investable asset? And then finally, you know, can this team actually execute this business, right? Can they be the ones that actually capture this value? Um, you alluded to it earlier in the conversation that you and Justin have had, you know, a really long relationship, both from playing and obviously over the last 20 years. Um, talk about what that relationship has meant for Landspire. And, and I have a, I have a kind of underlying agenda in asking that question, right? Which is, again, this kind of, you and I have talked about it offline before, but it's, it's just this concept of like, you know, folks wanting to partner or do something with athletes to improve their platform or their genesis, which is, you know, not necessarily in the right interests of the athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Or the underlying, you know, mission, vision, whatever it is you're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think actually having a kind of like a trusted person that, you know, you can be fully vulnerable with, not kind of question what's the alternative incentives here is, is critical, right? Yeah. Um, so I look for that a ton, you know, when I invest in companies, I want you to talk a little bit more, you know, about what that relationship's meant, um, uh, you know, for you personally and then for Landspire. Yeah. So, um, the relationship has been everything. And I think, you know, I mentioned before, you know, Justin was my, my host on my recruiting visit. So I literally have known him, you know, since I was a 17 year old kid and like, it's, it's been, uh, you know, an amazing journey together. Uh, you know, and for us, um, you know, another thing that's interesting is that we played on the same side of the floor. So we've had to play together, you know, for, for a long time, right? Um, but, but you know, Justin has a, a, a skill set and area expertise that I don't um, in a sense that he's been in the social impact investing space um, for, you know, 10 plus years. So, um, you know, he, he spent about four or five years playing ball professionally had some injuries, came back, um, you know, and started working for the K4 Center um, up in the Bay Area. Um, so he had exposure there. Then he went back to Stanford, got his MBA. And um, so he provided me with a, a, a level of experience and expertise 
um, you know, that I didn't have, right? So there was that value add there. Um, I kind of came on top of that and started to really fan out to my network, um, you know, that I, um, you know, uh, built over the last 15 years playing professional basketball. And so there was an initial marriage there. And it's like, all right, how do we make this work, um, you know, to, to solve a problem, right? And so you talked about this, you know, on the question and, and you know, the problem that we're trying to solve now is you have a massive housing shortage uh, in the country, specifically in California as well. Um, you know, there's a, a large affordability issue in addition to that. And I think that, you know, with one thing this, this coronavirus situation has taught all of us is that, um, you know, people need a place to live, people need a nice place to live. And, you know, there is a, a definite need for, um, you know, uh, kind of connectivity, right? So, you know, you, you're seeing there, there's a, a, an issue with uh, people having to work from home. Uh, and so what does that look like moving forward? You know, are we, are we going to be like this, you know, in this kind of remote working situation for a long period of time? Are we not? Um, the millennial demographic at large is, um, you know, going to be the largest working, um, you know, group of people over the next seven to 10 years. And um, they're moving to places that are more affordable. You know, you have Google and, and I think Twitter shut down, um, you know, their working space, their office, yeah. um, you know, and so why would somebody live in San, in San Francisco now? You know, it, it, it's, it's starting to, to, to make less and less sense. And our, our business model moving forward is targeting, targeting these secondary and tertiary markets, um, you know, where we're seeing kind of a mass exodus out of New York, out of LA, out of San Francisco, out of some of these more expensive, uh, you know, markets into more affordable areas. And, and that's what we're tackling. Um, you know, the, the Compton project and stuff that we'll do kind of locally are our passion projects and things that we, you know, feel strongly about. But the core of our business is going to be centered around, um, you know, this, uh, you know, kind of millennial flight, if you will, um, you know, which we're, we're, we're seeing happen across the country. So um, we're trying as, as best we can to, to um, you know, keep up with, you know, the movements that are happening in the market. And I think, um, you know, you're, you're seeing the strength of the multifamily uh, and now the industrial with the, the uptick in e-commerce, um, uh, you know, across the country. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to tackle the problems that are happening in this country and, and um, you know, be a solution for those. And I, I want to talk about, um, I want to pick up on that last thread, right, which is, you know, identifying problems in this country and being a solution for them. There's one part of it, of course, which is, you know, a part of the business model, right, which is what you just outlined moving into second tier, third tier cities, et cetera. Um, there's another element of platform too. Um, we had a, to say the least, interesting uh, reality TV episode late last night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to get into, you know, given, given the state of the world, and you and I have talked about this offline, but, you know, and what we're going through as a society, it's only been accelerated now, right? Pandemic, race relations. Um, at their all-time lowest, and that's that's not a joking matter, right? Um, how do you view your responsibility as someone that has a platform? I'm a huge LeBron fan. I love what he's doing on the court, but I love even more what he's doing off the court. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm I, I'm curious from your perspective, having kind of been in those shoes, still being in those shoes with having a platform, you know how you view and kind of intertwine this element of what you're saying, right, of driving impact. Um, and just, you know, how you react to leveraging your platform during, you know, what, what we're going through as a society right now. Yeah, I would say, um, historically speaking, I'm not the most vocal person. I'm not one to, to go and, you know, shout on the rooftops that I think you should do X, Y, Z. Um, you know, and I like to work behind the scenes. And um, I think that it's really important to have both. Uh, and my platform specifically is trying to target uh, an issue that is plaguing um, a lot of people in this country, which is affordable housing, right? And um, how can I, through all of the turmoil that's, that's happening socially, um, you know, take something else off of, off of people's plate, right? Where they have a quality place to live, you know, where they feel safe, the kids feel safe, and where there's a sense of ownership, um, you know, where, you know, if, if I can create an environment where the community at large has a much 
larger impact on you know the the local uh, municipality, the the the, the fire you know fire uh, stations, the police chiefs, the things of that sort. Maybe we start to impact change you know on a more grassroots organic level. And so you know it's about creating ownership of those communities, so that then you know the communities are now patrolled patrolled by and managed by um, you know individuals that you know, are representative of the community at large that don't see, you know, black and brown kids as a threat, that see them as somebody that looks like them and that they can relate to. Um, and, you know, that's more of my approach. It's like, you know, how can I dig in on the grassroots level, you know, and impact change through that way versus, you know, posting on Instagram about, uh, you know, the things that other Whatever guys are. It might be. Yeah. 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 You, um, on a lighter note, you're, so you're more, obviously you're more than a pro ball player. We've, it's, it's patently obvious after this discussion, but you're more than a real estate developer too. You recently, and this was another fun thing I, I learned about you. You recently wrote a children's book. Uh, yeah. you know, tell me about what brought on that initiative. Um, and it's, it's interesting again, right, Josh, it's, it, it just, I think it's a, it's another element, um, that unpeels your personality and kind of shines out at someone that, that takes on new challenges, new kind of initiatives. So what, what brought on the children's book? And yeah, just, just walk through that thought process of, I'm sure the idea of kind of publishing, right? Going into an e-commerce platform and selling it, all, all of those elements were new learning experiences. For sure they were. Um, and I'm still learning through that. Um, you go back to representation, that was a key driver. Um, you know, I, I had uh, my first daughter and uh, was reading her a book at night before bed and I just didn't like the book. It just, it didn't really make sense to me. And I'm like, why am I reading her this silly book? And um, so I just said, I'm gonna write a children's book. And, uh, and I did it. And um, I'm very happy that I did because, um, you know, she sees uh, characters on the page that look like her, uh, that are aspiring to be architects and engineers and uh, you know, and doctors and things of that sort. And, and um, I think that that's important. And, um, you know, the book is entitled I Am Magnificent. And it's also about self-affirmation and, and, you know, teaching that in the early age, uh, that positive, you know, uh, affirmations are important. And so I love when I hear um, kids, I get videos sometimes on IG, I hear kids, you know, say I am magnificent. And that just brings me so much joy um, you know, because in a, in a world, in a society where there's a consistent bombardment, uh, bombarding of negative, uh, you know, negative things, negative images, negative videos, um, you know, kids kind of having that and, and saying that out loud um, is super important. So, um, you know, that was the reason I did it. And, uh, you know, the feedback has been been pretty positive. I love that. Josh, as we round out the conversation, I want to go through kind of a rapid fire round with you. So I'm gonna ask a couple different questions and you can take at liberty, whether it's, you know, one word and no explanation, we leave it at that or, or a couple <laughs> of or so. So let's okay. start out with who is your biggest mentor um, in life, right? Whether it's growing up, you know, through the NBA, whatever you, you know, your call, who's your biggest mentor and why? Biggest mentor is a guy by the name of Tony Jantz, um, based in Australia. Um, he set me on the path to uh, where I am now um, you know, that was part of my, my going to Australia was, you know, learning from business individuals in the, in the Sydney market. And the first time I met him, he opened a spreadsheet and showed me the, you know, the performance of his business and the relationship grew from there. So he's been my biggest influence. Um, and the reason why I think I've been able to transition out of basketball, um, the way that I have so far. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, probably my mother, you know, just her sacrifice. I think that she's, you know, she's just, just one of the strongest, you know, people that I've ever been around. And, you know, she used to sacrifice uh, significantly for myself and my brothers. Um, and uh, that has uh, always resonated with me um, and something that I try to do for my kids as well. Jordan or LeBron? Jordan. <laughs> that hard? <laughs> when it's all said and done, what do you want people to know Josh Childress for? 
for being um, an impact, a positive impact on the community and those around him. Josh, I know you're a super busy guy. Um, I so enjoyed the conversation uh, and you know, learning a lot from you. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. You know, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. And uh, I know that um, you have had some wildly successful people on here and uh, I'm humbled that you uh, brought me on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it and it's been, a, been an honor.